So we'll do that later. If you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're just going to read two verses this morning. Um, and then uh, we're, we're going to finish with the book of Hebrews next week. Uh, but in the meantime, obviously, this, uh, this benediction that we're going to cover this morning uh, all has to do with the good word that comes from God, from the cross, from the resurrection of Christ from the grave. Hear the, the good word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we reflect and remember upon Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe the words that have been recorded for us and preserved for us throughout the ages that we might know uh, the truth of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ, that we might know the hope that is given to sinners, that we might know the hope that is given to the saints of God to walk in such a way that we can delight ourselves in the very presence of our Maker and our Savior. We pray that you would give us the words of life again this morning and that we would receive them by faith and with love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. At the age of 16, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm going to tell you, this is an illustration, but I actually have to explain the names just briefly before I give the illustration. There's a list of a bunch of musicians I'm going to mention to you very briefly. Don't worry if you don't know who they are. I don't even know who they are. But there's a point that's eventually going to help you see this, all right? Age 16, a Hungarian pianist. His name is Andor Foldish. He was already a very accomplished pianist at just a teenage year, but he was undergoing some very difficult times, both personally as well as musically, began to doubt himself in a lot of ways. And in the midst of his struggles, a very renowned pianist of that day came to visit him in Budapest. And that pianist, who was also a composer, is a German composer named Emil von Zauer. I know you don't know who he is. Some of you do. Uh, who was famous not only for his abilities, but also for being the last surviving pupil of the great pianist Franz Liszt. Do you know him? Okay. And when von Zauer arrived, he requested that Foldish, this young teenager, would play for him. And he did. And he chose some of the most difficult works of Bach, Beethoven, and Schumann. And when he finished playing, the elder von Zauer walked over to him and kissed him on the forehead. And here's what he said to him. He said, my son, when I was your age, I became a student of Liszt, who also kissed me on the forehead after hearing me play for him, saying, take good care of this kiss, for it comes from Beethoven himself, who gave it to me after hearing me play. Now I have waited for years to pass on this sacred heritage to someone, and I feel that you truly deserve it. Can you imagine what that kiss would have meant to that young man? Uh, being the only one in his generation to receive it, a, a mark of, of greatness from a group of musical aristocracy like none other. 
He had their official endorsement and approval for all the hard work, all the validation that he had yearned for, that solemn symbol of affection that was given to him in a brief moment when he came over and, and gave that kiss to that young man. Now, I, I realize that as long as we live in this fallen world, there will be times in which we just don't measure up to anything. In fact, we don't even measure up to the hype of our own expectations. Uh, there is a sense in which we all at times just feel weak, insignificant, depressed even, shameful that we haven't lived up to what we thought we ought to be. And, and, and all of these things that, that deal with that, um, there's something wrong with the world that we live in, and yet there's this great anticipation, this great concept of glory and what it ought to be. We all yearn for it. You yearn for it? You know what I'm talking about? And yet we don't experience it. What does Easter have to do with that feeling? Uh, what does the resurrection of Christ have to do with us as individuals? Well, there's this deep sense of inadequacy and dread that we all will experience at some point in our life. Hopefully not too often, but we are confronted with it from time to time. And I want to tell you the reason why we feel that is because of our estrangement from God as sinners. Somehow, we are not what we were meant to be. We were meant to live in a close relationship with God. To enjoy His friendship. To enjoy His esteem. To identify ourselves and our worth as His honored subjects. To find our, our, our very purpose in doing His perfect will. And when we're not in that relationship with Him in that way, we sense there's something wrong. It's not as it should be. We, 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 we feel that there's some, something missing. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and, and we sinned like them and in them as a result of our own rebellion, our own disobedience from God, we too have felt that sense of lostness that nakedness, that shamefulness. We've experienced that. We know what that's like. And as a result, we want to hide from God. We don't want Him to see just how vile our affections can really be when we don't have the filter over our mouth. We don't even want our closest loved ones to know how much at times we even detest our own selves. Am I the only one who has ever felt that way? There's something wrong with me that I don't like. And we've tried at times, many times, to better ourselves. We've changed our circumstances. Some of us have lost weight. <laughs> and yet, that sense doesn't go away. No matter how much our circumstances change, we still feel that sense of restlessness and, and conflict, a conflicted sin and doubt that's within our bodies might still somewhat seem youthful, but inside our, our souls have been ruined by the fall. And as a result, we've experienced all kinds of misery because we're just not what we ought to be. Eventually, for those who still have the youthful body, it won't last very long. Eventually, your body will measure up to what your soul feels like, and you too will feel ruined. Right? 
That's the bad news. But to complicate it even more, we as sinners, we don't desire the things of the Lord. And even in our attempts at bettering ourselves, we don't humble ourselves before our Maker and admit what's really wrong with us. We don't seek to confess our sins to Him. That's not in our nature. We simply are unable to do that because we refuse to acknowledge that God is the main character in this story that we're living in. We still think that we're the star of the show. And as a result, our own petty desires, everything revolving around us, our own vain imaginations, our fleshly lust they're never realized, ever. We continue to pretend that we're the master of our own universe, but deep down we know that there's something not right with us. That we've offended a holy God. That we've rejected His rightful rule over us. And as a result, instead of feeling the glory that we were made to feel at creation, we feel worthless at times. On top of that, we sense that we're not only wrong with the world, but that we deserve all that the law of God says ought to happen to those who reject Him. That indeed, the wages of our sin includes not only the miseries of this life, but death and even the pains of hell forever. That's what the Scripture teaches. That's what the law of God demands for those who have rejected His authority. That's the bad news in a nutshell. Anybody here this morning want to hear the good news? At the appointed time, at just the right time, while we were still weak, Christ came to die for the ungodly. For God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, still despicable, Still wrong. Christ died for us. Romans 6, verses 6 through 8. He says, For when the fullness of time had come, God sent His own Son, Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God, the very radiance of the glory of God, the One through whom He created the heavens and the earth. He came down. He took on flesh in order to reconcile the world to Himself through His own shed blood. Now, unlike the rest of us who broke fellowship with God, who have rebelled against God and all of His holy law since the day we were born, Jesus was born as a baby. He lived in perfect fellowship and harmony with the Father every day of His life. Submitted to every law of God in His perfect wisdom. Displayed the type of love that we have never seen in any other human a perfect patience a perfect kindness a perfect goodness a perfect humility a perfect comfort and care even though there was nothing especially striking at all about his appearance we're told in isaiah 53 he put on display the most stunning graceful captivating love that one would ever see And, and, and the beauty of that relationship is sort of like that illustration I mentioned before. The father absolutely was enamored with him. 
loved him with an everlasting love, an abiding, deep love, was fully pleased with everything that Jesus ever did, was so proud of him, so happy with him, so content to share in his fellowship at every single moment that he lived on this earth. Because he was so holy, so righteous, so good, that God always wanted to be with him. If there was ever one deserving of God's kiss of love, it was Jesus Christ. He deserved it. And and we see this clearly because even when Jesus was baptized, when he was about to begin his public ministry, he was baptized in the Jordan River, and we see immediately the heavens are opened. Some physical form in the shape of a dove comes and lands on his shoulder, showing the peace of God. And the voice from heaven, the Father's voice himself, says to him directly, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. You couldn't please me anymore. I couldn't love you anymore. Now keep in mind, this is sort of what we're all kind of desperate for. That kind of love. That kind of validation. That kind of approval. Because we sense there's something wrong with us. Again, we were meant to enjoy something of glory, and yet we haven't enjoyed that much at all. Rather, we felt like somehow we're a mistake, that we're worthless, that we're hopeless, that we're insignificant because of what has happened to us through the fall, through the sin. And yet that longing desire tells us we were made for glory. We, it's not just that we're all just dreamers, that there's no reality behind the dream. That what we dream for, that your, your greatest, most profound dream of greatness will never compare with what you were designed to be. God made you for glory. The problem is we haven't enjoyed it because of our sin. So here's the wonder of the gospel. You ready? That the God of all love, all joy, peace, becomes the man of sorrows. As the hymn says, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. God saves ruined lives through Jesus Christ. Again, He who deserved all glory, all honor, all praise, instead on the cross bore all shame and guilt and the displeasure of God, the condemnation of God, as He's hanging naked on a cross with a crown of thorns beaten into His head. The Father turns His back on Him. Darkness covers the land. And God pours out His hot anger upon His own Son and curses Him. Because that's what we deserve. Here's the Gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says that. I can agree with him. Christ came to save not just good people. There are no such thing. He came to save murderers. He came to save adulterers. He came to save homosexuals and prostitutes and pornographers 
and thieves and idolaters and drunkards and liars and cheats and cowards of all kinds. He came to save those who were disobedient to their parents and hated every man. He came to save sinners, the worst of the worst, those who were sick and knew that they were sick, that knew there was something wrong with them, and they had no hope save for Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, here's been one of the main points of the author of Hebrews that we've been going through this book, is that Jesus Christ is greater than anyone who ever came before Him. He was greater than Aaron, the the, the famous high priest in the Old Testament who was always associated with the tabernacle and later with the temple. He was greater than Aaron because he offered a spotless and sinless life unto God that Aaron could never live up to. He could sympathize with the weaknesses of men in love in a way that Aaron couldn't even imagine. And yet, in addition to that, what Aaron could offer to God was just a goat and a lamb and a ram and a bull, and then he'd have to do it again and again and again. And yet Jesus Christ comes one time and says, I have come to do your, my Father's will. Here I am. And then he lays down his life as the perfect final sacrifice of God. And there's no other. He's better than anything that ever came before. He's better than the tabernacle. He's better than the temple. He's better than Jerusalem itself. Nothing compares. Now, we have to understand that sinners do not deserve that type of blessing. I mean, if you literally the Scripture says if you want to enter into the gates of the kingdom, someone has to have clean hands and a pure heart and a tongue that's never spoken evil. Raise your hand if that applies. It doesn't. You will never get into heaven, ever, based upon comparing yourself with anyone else in this room or anyone else at home or on the news that you hear of. doesn't matter how bad you think someone else is because you're not comparing yourself to someone else. You're comparing yourself to the perfect law of God. And the law of God says you have to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and never sin. No one qualifies, see. You will never get into heaven based upon that. The only how you can get into heaven is if God is actually pleased with you and loves you and kisses you and welcomes you into his kingdom. How does that happen? For someone who is a sinner who has ruined his or her life. Raise your hand if you've ruined your life. Some of you don't realize it yet. The only way an Israelite was ever blessed in the Old Testament was not by their keeping of the law. They were blessed because there were animals that were killed in their place. And that passage we read earlier in Numbers chapter 6, it takes place in the context of the temple sacrifices after Aaron has just shed the blood of a hundred sacrifices or more. He raises his hands, blood-stained hands, to the people in front of him, and it says, the Lord now bless you and keep you. Why? Not because you've done anything good, but because something else has died in your place. You deserve the curses of God, and instead I'm going to give you the blessings of God by putting my own name upon you. In other words... I'm pronouncing my blessing upon myself because I'm the one who deserves this and yet you have never lived up to it. 
I'm going to give it to you based upon the sacrifices that all pointed to Christ. No one was ever saved in the Old Testament through the blood of an animal or a beast. It all pointed to Christ. And so we see that in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, for those who have trusted in Christ, we now have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms. Every blessing that Aaron ever pronounced upon the Israelites could only be pronounced through Jesus Christ. The animals represented him. That's it. It's always been through the blood of Christ. And so what we see in this particular passage at the conclusion to the epistle to the Hebrews is a reinterpretation, if you will, of the old Aaronic blessing. But you'll notice that it's now fully realized in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The blessing that Aaron pronounced in the Old Testament didn't have the full realization of how that blessing was given. It's given only through Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Which is why every benediction, every good word that's pronounced upon God's people in the New Testament always ends with the doxology of praise to Jesus Christ. Because He can only pronounce a good word upon you because He was the good word who gained it for you. He gained that benediction for you. Now, before I break down some of the components of that blessing, I want to do that with you this morning. I wanted to briefly explain the purpose of a benediction. It's not something that you see in the world today. Uh, in fact, more than likely, you see a lot of maledictions in a thousand different ways. In fact, I was telling someone the other day, I've been trying to learn more Spanish lately. In addition to my little language program, I, I try to watch this. I was watching this criminal show on, on television. I turned the volume down and just tried to read the words. And every now and then it kept saying, maledicion, maledicion, maledicion. Somebody's cursing. And that's all it says. Never once did I ever see a word that says benediction. Never, ever. You never see that. You never hear that. We're full of maledictions in this world, but where does this blessing come from and why does it come upon us and why do we need it? The good words that are pronounced upon God's people are gospel words. You won't get that in culture. They're words of hope an encouragement given to a people who are continuing to struggle against their sin, who have self-doubt, wonder where they stand with God, and God continues to reiterate, I love you. I'm for you. I'm pleased with you. When do you ever hear that from other people? <laughs> Not often. Every Sunday, I raise my hands and I remind you of what God says to you. The benediction he gives to you because of what Christ has done for you. And these words are pronounced not just as hopes, but as promises. That because of what Christ has done, what he has accomplished, what he has finished, he now can give to you with certainty. That he will love you, he will provide for you, he will keep his covenant with you to the end. But it's also important to point out that sort of where these benedictions fall in the New Testament epistles, they always fall right after God gives a number of commands, whether it's the Apostle Paul, Peter, or anyone else. So, so in other words, there, there's always this long list of commands that says, do. <laughs> you should do this. You should do this. And immediately like, I, I can't do that. Then the Lord raises His hands again. 
I'll give you the ability to do that. I have given you that ability. I'm for you. The law is not your enemy anymore. The law is pure wisdom given to you to help you to know how to love God. So the regular pattern in the New Testament always goes like this. It's a, it's a brief prayer that one of the apostles is praying for the congregation. After he prays for them, he then gives them this long explanation of what Christ has done, of what Christ has accomplished, of the hope that we have in Christ, of our salvation in Christ and our sanctification in Christ. And then he gives a list of commands, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. But then immediately afterwards, he sandwiches that again with, but God has done this for you. God will do this in you, and there's hope for you. You're not hopeless. You're not defeated. You're not a failure anymore. God is for you. And so, we hear this benediction again and again that is pronounced upon ruined sinners who have been saved by grace. And we are now changed into God-fearing, law-abiding, neighbor-loving men and women who are zealous to do the good works of God for His glory. And the benediction reminds us of who we are. We are God's people. Now, with all that being said, there are a number of blessings that come to believers as a consequence of Christ's resurrection from the dead. I want to point out to you three this morning that are very clearly in this text. Here are the three. In the resurrection of Christ Jesus, first, there is the promise of God's peace. Second, there is the promise of God's power. And third, there is the promise of God's pleasure. So this morning, we're going to consider the, the peace the power and the pleasure of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. The promise of God's peace. Verse 20, the author of Hebrews refers to God himself as the God of peace. It's precisely because God is the God of peace that he has made a way through the cross of Christ to make peace with sinners. Now, most people know the word peace in Hebrew is shalom. Now, it means uh, more than just an absence of conflict. It also uh, suggests this friendship and, and harmony with God, as well as an individual's wholeness, restoration, completeness, rightness with God. All of these things are wrapped up in the shalom of God, the peace of God that He gives to you through your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is the only man worthy of receiving that type of peace. That's the type of blessing that would be pronounced upon Him. And yet, we deserve that curse. So again, Isaiah 53 that we spoke about the other night. There we're told that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then it says, upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was chastised. He was cursed that we might be blessed. That we might have peace. God is angry with him in order that he might show us his love. Because of our sin, we deserve to be chastised, we deserve to be flogged, we deserve to be lashed, to be crucified, hanging naked upon a cross. At least in the worldly sense of these things. But instead, Christ receives these things. And when he 
is risen from the dead. He comes back. He visits the disciples before he ascends up into heaven. To John 14, he says to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Believe in me. He gives that peace because he's earned that peace through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and then he gives it freely to us. Of course, that doesn't mean that God always takes away every confidence in the peace of God. There are many times in our lives where we experience the storms of life. We experience the bitter circumstances, even of our sins, but God never withdraws from us. He never forsakes us. He never changes His mind in terms of His covenant with us. And yet He continues, even in the darkest of days, even in our greatest of sin, even after we've trusted in Christ, He confirms, I have peace with you through the shed blood of my own Son, Jesus Christ. I am not your enemy anymore. I am not your antagonist. There is no more wrath I have for you. No more condemnation I can give to you. I have poured it all out upon my own son. You know the term double jeopardy. We've already been accused. We've already been determined to be guilty. Christ pays for that penalty. It can't be brought upon us again. God only has his peace upon us. Not because we deserve it, but because Christ deserves it, and all who are in Christ receive it. It's the blessing of peace that comes from God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's number one. Secondly, there's also a promise of God's power. The resurrection of Christ not only speaks to, to the peace that we receive as believers, but also equips us with power now to do what God's will says we ought to do. Now, the same power that rose, rose Jesus from the dead is at work in all who believe in Him today. The same power is made available to us at every minute of the day that we might walk with the Lord. Now, just because it's available doesn't mean that we automatically tap into it. Um, however, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, he want, he, he's praying for the believers, and he says he wants them to know, he's asking God that they might know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. In that passage, the power was pleaded in a prayer. In our passage this morning, it's pledged as a promise. One that we're to pray for, but also one that we are confirmed to receive because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's promised to give us that power, that resurrection power, power that can be used for giving glory to God. In the Greek, again, it's, it's the word, it sort of looks like our English word, energy. He gives us this great energy, this great dynamite power to be able to do that which we could never do before. To love in a way that we could never love before. He's enabled us to live a new life. Our old life is totally different. 
Now there's power for a new life to live in a way that God has called us to live. You see, God didn't save us merely that we might have peace and and have our ticket to heaven. He, He wants us to be able to walk with Him in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, Paul mentions the God of peace again, saying, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely for the same peace that we have received. The peace is meant to lead us then to holiness. Not only so that we might have peace with God, but that now we can walk with God and enjoy walking with Him. Just as Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, to know Him, to grow in a relationship with Him. And this is extremely important. I I can't have you miss this. So if you've fallen asleep a little bit already, wake up a little bit now. Extremely important. This is where most Christians go off the tracks in their understanding of the Gospel. Some have a tendency to focus so much on justification and our peace with God, they somehow belittle our calling towards sanctification as if it doesn't matter. As if we're not capable of growing. As if we're not capable of changing. As if we're not capable of doing what God says we ought to do. God gives us this power that we've never had before through the resurrection of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Very famous passage. Helping us to understand the difference between our justification and sanctification. is work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for Him. For his good pleasure. In other words, where we were powerless and antagonistic to everything that God wanted for us before, we now have power and desire to do those very things. A new person, a new mind, a new ability that we never had has been promised to you. You don't have to live a defeated life who just has his ticket to heaven. God gives you that power, that resurrection power at work within you, thou that you can learn to walk with God in holiness, in godliness. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul says this, through the power of the Holy Spirit, applying the the resurrection power to us. He says, we all now with unveiled face can behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about here and now. As you look in the Scripture and you're looking and you're seeing Jesus Christ in Scripture as you behold His face, He gives you power to have your face become like His. To change. To grow in love like His. You can do it. Not just by trying harder, but by loving Christ more. The more you look at Him, the more power you have. The more desire you have. Because you spend time with this person who loves the Father, you're going to start loving Him too. That's how it works. It's all through Jesus. Everything that we've lost through the fall and the sin, God is now restoring in us righteousness, holiness, godliness, the power, the ability, the desire to do that which we could not do before. And as a result, we now realize, 
I'm not worthless. I am not helpless. I'm not insignificant. God has a plan for me. God has a plan for His church in this world, and I'm part of that plan. And through that divine, sovereign power, He's displaying His glory in this world through me. Through you. Through the church. That we're not a defeated church. There's power there. He gives us peace, but He also gives us power. Then third, He gives us pleasure. His pleasure. Verse 21, the author says that through Christ's resurrection, God is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. And to me, this is one of the greatest promises in Scripture, that through the resurrection, we as ruined sinners, are not just forgiven, we're not just accepted, but we're actually enabled by that same power to bring delight to God. We never could do that before. (sighs) That brings delight too. We, We never could do that. You could never give delight to God because of our sin. If you pay attention as you read through the New Testament epistles, the writers are constantly exhorting their readers how to please the Lord and that they ought to please the Lord. That this is His will for us. But the implication is that we can please the Lord. We can bring delight to the Lord. For instance, Ephesians 5, verse 10, Paul says to the church, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Why? So that you can do it. 1 Thessalonians 4, he urges the believers to walk and to please God more and more. You're capable of growing in your ability to bring delight to God. Romans 12, 2, again, a pivotal passage in the book of Romans where after he's told them all that Christ has done, he's about to give them a bunch of commands and he tells them, I want you to discern what the will of God is. Why? In order that you might please Him. That you might give Him delight through your restored life. Through the glory that God has given you through the resurrection of Jesus. But for those who've never desired to learn God's will before, never brought any pleasure to God at all through their good works, now this glorious promise of God is given through the benediction that not only do you have power to, to do good works, but you have power to please God. To me, that's amazing. Because the, the, the very aspect, I think, of our identity that's so confusing in this world is that we don't even please ourselves. Think about it. I mean, how, how often are you that delighted with yourself? A few proud people may be here this morning. Most of the time, we disappoint ourselves, and yet you have the power to bring delight to God. Because of the gospel. I've shared a story with you before, uh, for those of you who've been here, of a father and son who were estranged in the country of Spain. Uh, Something happened. Uh, Father said something. The son said something. The son ran away. The father was determined to find him. For many months, searched for him to no avail. Finally, he put an ad in the newspaper. Do you remember this? He put an ad in the newspaper in the Madrid newspaper, and the ad read this way, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of a particular newspaper office at 12 o'clock on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. 
Then Saturday at noon rolls around, 800 Pacos showed up outside (laughs) the office. Because every one of them so craved, so desired that relationship with their father because it was estranged because of their sin, you see. You can imagine you were created by a heavenly father to enjoy that kind of relationship with him. And he's saying to you through the benediction, I love you. All is forgiven. We're reconciled. Come be with me. But that, that explains the peace of God. But I, I, want, I want to go farther than that. The, that's a great illustration for how God gives us his peace. But the illustration of power and pleasure, I think, goes back to that initial illustration that I gave to you this morning in reference to the kiss of the kiss of the kiss of Beethoven. In that case, the young man who was struggling musically, struggling personally, and yet was developing his gifts, was getting better, already was recognized by the Master and gave full delight to him and gave his benediction upon him and promised him, you have my validation. You have my approval. I'm delighted by your music. You see, the Gospel doesn't just tell us that God now has pity upon us. That God feels sort of sad for us. And that, you know, He's still going to bring us into heaven, but just barely. No, He's transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And even as He sees us get better, He gives us that kiss, that benediction. Oh, I'm so delighted in you. I'm delighted in all that you've been able to do. All the ways you've gotten so much better. All of this. He's genuinely pleased with our good works. Rejoicing over us in love because of what Christ has done for us and now given us something that reflects His own Son through our identity with Christ and then what Christ is now doing in us through the Holy Spirit. He gives us that ability. All of this only due to Jesus Christ as Savior. If it weren't for Him, the Lord would turn away from me in disgust. Because all of my works are are filthy rags in His sight. There's nothing that I can give to Him. Uh, I'm just a despicable person. Uh, Perhaps you think you're much better. I'll give you credit for that. But Christ died for sinners. He resurrects sinners. He restores sinners. He restores people from the most glorious ruins. The most glorious ashes. (laughs) No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've done it, the beauty of the Gospel is it happens on the darkest of days when literally darkness is covering the earth. When you think that all is over and that it's all been lost, there's no way there's any hope on this day. And then Christ is risen from the dead. He surprised them then. He can surprise you now. That same power 
that God used to raise Jesus from the dead on Sunday. He can raise you today. Can bring hope to you today. Give strength to you today. Remind you once again that that kiss of love, that benediction is upon you even though you've done everything wrong. You trust in Christ. You receive a good word from heaven because of what Christ has done for you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to believe that you can love someone as evil as we are. That you can love someone as broken and has caused so much devastation to those around us. We've hurt those that we love the most. We've despised your word. We've pursued all sorts of idols and have sinned in a thousand different ways. Lord, give us the hope to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can restore a ruined sinner, restore the life, restore the hope, restore the joy, restore the future, that we can walk in your very presence and grow from one degree of glory to another that on the final day when we are in your very presence physically, we might know that we are yours and you are ours and that you are pleased because of your son.